If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We are so habituated to the presumption that we can understand the world in terms of non-fiction that it takes an enormous leap to understand that what Herodotus is doing had never been done before. Um, and so the revolutionary quality of his work cannot be overestimated. That was Tom Holland, who's just translated The Histories by Herodotus. And also this week, we'll be hearing from historians Margaret Macmillan and Ben Wilson about some of their favourite books. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. Plus we have digital editions available on the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The 5th century BC Greek writer Herodotus is widely known as the father of history. His writings, The Histories, is one of the most important reference works produced in the Western world. Modern day historian Tom Holland has spent the past nine years working on a new translation of The Histories, and he spoke to our books editor Matt Elton about the text and what it can tell us about the cultures and people of the classical world. I was publicising a book I wrote on the Persian Wars, which, of course, the whole story of that depends on Herodotus Mm. fundamentally. And um, I gave a talk at which the editor of Penguin Classics was was in attendance, and he asked me afterwards would I be willing to, to do the new translation for Penguin Classics. And um, I, I kind of both flinched and took the chance <laughs> because it was such a huge project mm. and also because um, it, it needs such an immersion in the Greek that at, the, at that point I just felt that my Greek wasn't, was not up to it. Okay. So I said I was happy to do it but that I would have to have, be allowed as long yes. to do it yes. as, as, you know, I didn't want to have a deadline. No. So... Half the time really was spent in, in immersing myself in, in the Greek before I even began mm. on the project. Um, and in a way, it was sort of it was a dream opportunity because it was a gun pointed to the head <laughs> saying that you have to, you, you will have to be able yes, yeah. to do this. I mean, how much of a challenge was that? Uh, quite a challenge because it's, the, it's, it's, it's a hugely long work. Mm. Um, and so I knew that it would be an enormous commitment. But equally, I knew that there was no author that I would rather spend the time with than Herodotus. Okay. And Um, and the proof of the pudding is that um, I remain as fond of him now as as when I began. That's good. Fantastic. Because it's a bit like it's a bit like doing a biography. Mm. That that there are those biographers who, by the 
after they've spent years and years with their subject, they hate it. <laughs> that must be. <laughs> but awful. I don't have that. I I, I I remain as fond, if anything, fonder. Okay, fantastic. How long has it taken then? In all, do you think? Um, I just think it's been. Um, it's been almost nine years. Wow. Okay. It's a sizable project. A massive project. project. Yeah. yeah. Are we right to see the work um, as being genuinely revolutionary? Do you think yes. that's fair to say? Yes. And not only is it the first work of history, but it's the first work of non-fiction. Mm. So it's the first attempt to understand the world. Um, it, it's the first attempt to portray the reality of the world. And so in that sense, it is sort of the... It's it's where the process that, that culminates in the internet ends, you know. It's, okay. it, Herodotus is the nearest equivalent to Wikipedia that we have. It's it's and what is moving about it is that we are so habituated to the presumption that we can understand the world in terms of non-fiction that it takes an enormous leap to understand that what Herodotus is doing had never been done before, um, and so the revolutionary quality of his work cannot be overestimated. Mm. In what ways, I mean, you kind of mentioned uh, that it's similar to Wikipedia there. Um, how is that so? Well, similar. I mean, it's, 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 it's the ancestral text for it. Okay. It's where the attempt to synthesise the entirety of the world's knowledge begins. Mm. I mean, that's partly why it's so impressive, is that um, it's so broad in scope. Um, do we get a sense of um, his ambition when he started writing? Well, he says at the, begin- the, the, the very first sentence, the very first work of history ever written, um, he's, he says that his ambition is to explain what it was that led the Greeks and the barbarians to go to war and to explain what it was that made them go to war. So that's, that's what he sets out as his ambition, and that's big enough. But ultimately, what he demonstrates is his understanding that he lives in a world in which um, something like that to explain why it was that the Greeks and the Persians went to war mm. requires an explanation essentially of the entire world mm. because he sees it as a world war, a world in which Asia and Europe, um, barbarians and Greeks, the imperatives that drive them into conflict are not, um, are not something that can be summed up without reference to the entire sweep of, of, of world history. Because with the Persian Empire and with the, 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 the expansion of horizons that that brings, essentially it, 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 the whole world is in play. Mm. And so Herodotus, in trying to explain what it was that made the Greeks and Persians go to war, finds himself essentially giving an, a panoramic account of the entire world. Mm. It's amazing. I mean, in amongst all this, do we get a sense of him as a man? Do we know much about his his life? Well, we don't know very much. We know that he's born in Halicarnassus because he tells us that, and we know that um, he ends up as a colonist in um, Italy. Um, we know from internal evidence that um, he was alert to what was going on in, in the Greek world of his own time. He, he alludes to events in, in the build-up to the Peloponnesian War and the Peloponnesian War itself. Um, beyond that, we have to extrapolate from what we get within um, his text. And what we get is the fact that he is, a, I, th- I think, a cutting-edge intellectual. He is very much a part of the milieu of the Ionian revolution, the rationalist revolution, that is also um, giving birth to what will ultimately become science, philosophy, all those traditions. 
But more than that, we get I, we get a sense of him. I think as a man who is infinitely tolerant, infinitely interested in the world, mm. a man who I think would be number one probably on my list of uh, the ideal dinner party guest. Do we get a sense of um, how he went about writing the book? Um, so perhaps what sources he used, the process of, of writing, of compiling it? We do. We, we, he, he is um, at pains to demonstrate how it was that he came by his evidence and he, in the course of his history, alludes to the different types of evidence. So he... Evidence that he has heard from people's mouths, um, evidence that is derived from hearsay. He, he categorises all these. And there are moments within the book where, I mean, for instance, you get, um, he, he tells us that he had spoken to someone who had sat next to um, a Persian just before the Battle of Patea, the last great battle in which the Persians were defeated. Um, and with that, he gives us a sense of what Persian morale was, the state of Persian morale on the eve of this battle. Mm. And it sends a shiver down the spine because what you have there is access to someone's speech, someone's opinion, mm. two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. Now, there is also, um, within Herodotus' history, it's, it's also ethnographic. It's, um, he's the first travel writer. He gives us detailed accounts of, um, of Egypt, of Scythia, of Babylonia. And there has been much debate as to whether Herodotus actually went to these places. Some scepticism mm. seems to me indisputable that he must have done. Um, he, he must have gone to Egypt. He must have gone to Babylonia. Because in a way, in a way it's, it's, it's the fact that he gets things wrong that to me proves that he did go there. It's, it's the things that he's misunderstood. It's the things that he's garbled. Mm. It's the things that he's seen but, but misinterpreted that to me suggests that he must have gone there. Yeah. Because it, he, it, it reads like someone who has visited. Mm. There's that thing in the front of the book about those massive ants, for instance, about how some people use that as kind of a... Well, I don't, he clearly didn't go to India. Mm. He clearly didn't go to the furthest reaches of Scythia. He does get things wrong. Mm. But what he always says throughout is, you know, this may sound fantastical, this may sound extraordinary, but I am only telling you what I have heard. Yes, yeah. I mean, what would you say to people who say that he's too trusting, that he takes things on face value too much? Do you think that's true? No, well, no. I, I, I think that he, um, I mean, he clearly gets things wrong on occasion. But what's interesting is, is that there are times where he, um, he doubts mm. things, and, and, and his expression of doubt enables us to see that actually what he's been told is right. And the classic example of that is he reports an account that he's been told by um, that some Phoenicians have, were sent on a, um, a circumnavigation around Africa. Um, and he says, I, I, I don't think that this can possibly be true because the Phoenicians report that the sun, the angle the direction in which the sun rose changed. Mm. And this, of course, for us, is proof that um, the Phoenicians had indeed crossed the equator mm. and that therefore what Herodotus had been told was right. Mm. But Herodotus himself reports it, but he says, he gives it with the caveat that he thinks it's wrong. Yeah. This kind of approach to his research and this use of sources, I mean, do you think that's a fundamental part of why the work is so 
kind of influential and so important. Still. Yeah, because without that, it would just be it would just be mythography. Mm. Yes, um, I mean it's 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 crucial, and it's again it's you can see how it's tying in with um, with developments in 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 philosophy at the same time. It's about trying to work out how we know. Yeah, you know what are the basis of knowledge, mm. and Herodotus is applying that to the field of of recent human affairs mm. but it's being applied by philosophers to the you know the broadest dimension of knowledge it's being applied by geographers to the realm of, of geography and it's being applied by proto-scientists to the dimension of science mm. so it's part of that and it's part of why we can see that the birth of history is a broader um manifestation of this revolution that's ongoing in greek thought Talking a bit about the cultures that he covers, which of course is a huge part of it, um, you wrote on Twitter last week um, that it's a great way of kind of showing us how alien the Greek culture was. In what ways was it so? The first thing to say is that um, Herodotus is amazingly alert to the relative quality of um, custom. He, He has this famous story where he describes Darius, the king of the Persians, summoning people from the margins of his empire. So he summons Greeks and he summons Indians. And Darius says to the Greeks who burn their dead, what would it take for you to eat your parents when they're dead? And the Greeks throw their hands up in horror and say nothing. Then Darius turns to the Indians who eat their dead, as a matter of custom, so Herodotus says, um, and says, what would it take for you to burn your dead? And they also throw their hands up in horror. And Herodotus says, this seems to me to prove the truth of what Pinder says, that custom is king. Now, there's a further dimension to that, that Herodotus is taking as his, as his standard, not a Greek, but a Persian, the Persian king. So it's the Persian king who occupies the centre of gravity in that story, which in turn is amazing. So... It's really important to emphasise that this is, uh, you know, this is this is amazingly alert to how various human culture is. Far more so than than the average columnist or journalist writing now. You know, Herodotus is, is making an attempt to think outside his box. Now, of course, he, he he doesn't do this completely because he is a man of his own upbringing and product. And so it is that when you begin the histories, for instance, you come to. Um, one of the early stories is that a description of a man, a king who want, who's who is who is passionately in love with his wife, and this for Herodotus is the is is the great flaw in his character. Mm. Um, he he takes it for granted that that men should not be sexually obsessed with their wives. Now, of course, that to yes. us seems a very odd mm. <laughs> sort of alien notion. <laughs> yes. Um, and what does this guy do? Well, he's so turned on by his wife that he wants his bodyguard to see her naked. Mm. Um, and so he pressures the bodyguard to see his wife naked. Yeah. Um, the woman is aware that this has happened and is absolutely scandalised. Um, because, to Herodotus' mind, barbarians are absolutely obsessed with not being seen naked. And Greeks take it for granted that... Um, that, that men, certainly not women, but men should be seen naked and that if you don't want to show off yourself off naked, it's because you're soft and flabby or you have something to hide. And again, this is a, a, a very alien notion to us. So w- within that opening story, you know, it's within the first three or four pages, immediately you're, you're, you're brought up against um, cultural presumptions that Herodotus is bringing to the table that are very far removed from our own mm. and which, of course, um, 
are far removed from the barbarians whom he's describing as well. I mean, the interesting thing about that particular story is it happens so, as you say, so soon through the work. Yes. Um, the sense that there are these diversions um, from what perhaps um, the work is thought to be about, so kind of military things. Uh, yeah. Are there any particular ones of those that you think are particularly uh, instructive or well, I, I remember when I first um, I, I, I first read Herodotus when I was very young because I got obsessed by the Persian Wars, and so I went and got the two volumes of Herodotus, not the Penguin version, <laughs> the Arabic version, from the library, and read that opening sentence and thought, brilliant, it's, you know, it's going to tell me all about Marathon and Thermopylae. This is what I want, and was slightly gobsmacked that he was veering off all over the place um, and sort of like, you know, he just couldn't. He, he, it was like a huge shaggy dog story. Now, he does say within his narrative that, that in his opinion, digressions are part of his plan. He, he makes no apologies for it. Um, and you get all kinds. I mean, you get, you get amazing sort of folk tales. So you get the story of Arian and the dolphin, the guy who plays the liar, and the dolphin comes, and he, you know, I mean, it's clearly fantastical. You get, I mean, the whole section on Egypt is a digression. It comes as part of the account of the Persian invasion of Egypt. And Roger says this is going to happen, and then he goes off for an entire book enormous, enormous discourse. Yeah. Um, likewise with, you know, the customs of, of the Scythians and the Babylonians. Mm. And when I was young, I was frustrated. I wanted to get to the, you know, cut to the chase. I wanted to get to, to Marathon and Thermopylae. Now I just wish that there'd be more digression yeah. because there's not a digression that isn't interesting. Mm. And um, put together, the effect of these digressions is to give us an absolutely unrivaled portrait of a world that is, you know, dead and gone for two and a half thousand years. Mm. I mean, we would just know infinitely less about that period without Herodotus and his digressions. Mm. So you say they were as important, if not more, as the kind of subject that you hoped it would be about when you yeah. yeah, reading it first. Fantastic. Um, talking about the other cultures, um, what impression of the other cultures, uh, sort of which you mentioned, do we get from, from work? Um, Herodotus is interested in, in ways that they differ from the Greeks. So he, for instance, about the Egyptians, he says that they, that essentially, that they are models of perversity, that um, the men uh, squat to pee, the women stand up to pee, um, that uh, the Egyptians um, shit in the house and eat outside. And all the and this to Herodotus seems extraordinary. It's a sort of reversal of everything that he takes for granted. Um, he's also interested in wonders, and so again, that explains the concentration on Egypt because he says that Egypt is is home to greater wonder, greater degree of wonders than any other country. Mm. It's it's also the focus of his interest, um, say in Babylon. Um, he lists the wonders. He lists the customs. Um, he lists the animals. Uh, he's interested in the flora and fauna. Um, you, you, you get a pretty, a, a pretty interesting account of, of of all these cultures, and it's notable that when you read a book about Egypt or Babylon or Scythia or the Persians, Herodotus's comments invariably provide the sort of the build, the, the the initial building block of the account. He he is absolutely crucial. To an understanding of these cultures, okay. and of course, you know he he is not entirely to be trusted, um, but in itself, the reasons why he's not to be trusted 
shed light on the, on, on, on those cultures yeah. and tell you about it. So, yeah. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's wonderful. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do we learn about the, the physical landscape of the world um, described in the book? that um, Herodotus knows some areas much better than others. Um, he, his descriptions of, of, the, of Greece and the Aegean area, as you'd expect, are very good. Um, his, um, his, his accounts of Egypt, I mean, are fascinating. There's, I mean, his sort of first description of a fossil, mm. he describes it in um, his, his argument that the land has been lifted up from the sea. I mean, you know, really interesting. Um, Further afield, it all gets a bit fuzzy. Okay. Um, he, I, my favourite bit is where he 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 floats the no, the possibility that there might be islands in the northwest, what, what, what we term as the northwest Atlantic. Right. So referring to the British Isles, but pooh poohs it because he says that he's never met anyone who's ever been there, so he doesn't believe that they exist. <laughs> so, nice. Moving to the wars, which of course is, um, despite the diversions, uh, a key part. Um, what players in these uh, conflicts particularly stand out, do you think? Well, I think that what's interesting is that you can tell who he's been talking to from the fact that um, a, a couple of people are, are treated in, in very sort of ambiguous ways. One of them is a man called Cleomenes, who is the king of Sparta um, in the build-up to the... Uh, marathon campaign and Herodotus seems to be reflecting rival traditions in his account of him um, there, the, the, there is a sense in which what he's writing about him contradicts itself so he's an in, one interesting example the other person who Herodotus does not treat as fully as it's evident he deserves to be treated is Themistocles who is the Athenian um, statesman who persuades the Athenians when they struck lucky in the local silver mines to invest the, the proceeds in a fleet 
which of course will turn out to be crucial when it comes to Salamis. And it's Themistocles who devises the entire strategy which centres on the Artemisian Thermopylae sort of hinge and then and then Salamis. And it's evident that Herodotus, although he can't um, downplay the role that Themistocles plays completely, um, is reliant on hostile traditions. The most interesting source that Herodotus has is a man called Demaratus, who is a Spartan king who gets deposed and then goes into exile and accompanies Xerxes on the invasion um, and provides a sort of running commentary on, on the Persian campaign. Um, and it's pretty clear that Herodotus is drawing either on Demaratus himself or on his, his sons and grandsons for, uh, for, for this material. So again, Demaratus has, has a much higher profile than otherwise he would. In terms of translating the work, what did that work involve? Well, I set myself this challenge that I would... Um, Herodotus's history is divided up into books and then the books are divided up into paragraphs, not by Herodotus himself, but by subsequent editors in the Hellenistic period. And so I set myself the challenge that I would do one of these paragraphs every day. Oh, cool. So it would work out... Sometimes this would be really small, you know, it would just be a line or something. Sometimes it would be three pages. So if I had a sort of short, you know, just a very short paragraph, I would try and get as many done as possible to bank up credit yeah. for when I had, you know, a hugely long paragraph. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the one thing about it is that, that reading through the, the translation in proof and so on, the one thing, it's like a kind of photograph album because I can remember exactly where I was oh, whenever crazy. I did it. So I can remember, you know, when I, I remember the bits I did say on Christmas Day, oh. the bits I did on planes, the bits I did while travelling around, the bits I did while I was on holiday. All, you know, it's wonderful. Yeah. I, can, I, I can remember it vividly where I was when I did every little bit. That's really lovely for you as a personal yeah, connection to it. Yeah, yeah it is. So you didn't even start for Christmas. I like that. No, of course no. not. Of course not. It's kind of it's like a sort of kind of um, intensive, um, you know, a diet or keep fit regime. Mm, the, 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 the the process itself becomes addictive. Yes. Fantastic. And when I stopped it, I you know I missed it. Yes. Do you still miss it? No. Is it? no. <laughs> <laughs> I've said no it anymore. Fantastic. Um, we have touched on challenges a little bit. What was the biggest challenge that you encountered in? process of doing this well the, you know every so often there are passages that are unbelievably naughty and seem to me to defy ready translation the meaning is is obscure you have the sense that something isn't that you're missing something in the greek okay um and so those passages which i think are inevitable in a in a text as as ancient as that, are always were always the the, the real challenges. Mm. I mean, having said that, Herodotus is nothing compared to Thucydides. Okay, it's really difficult, mm. and where the meaning I think is often sort of oh, very hard to pin down with any okay. certainty. Okay. So, what did you do when you found a passage that was particularly difficult? Did you go away and then come back to it, or were there that kind of how, how did you deal with that? I well, they, they're, they're usually notorious cruxes, and so there's usually an awful lot of commentary about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I would read the commentary, and then I would I would decide what my perspective on it was, and it would often be. I mean, there's one there's one I remember particular being particularly difficult, which describes um, how um, the Persians. Value um, 
the culture of their neighbours according to how close those neighbours are to Persia. Okay. So the further you go, the more barbarous and savage they and backward they see people as being. And it's obviously ironic because the Greeks are a very long way away. Yeah. Um, and Herodotus relates it to um, median practice and the meaning is, is, is kind of evident but it's, it's very hard to untie the knot completely yeah. um, and I found that I remember that as being the single hardest passage to translate okay. I think it's important to emphasise the incredible variety you get mm. um, that you get you know, unbelievably thrilling narrative mm. the plot of 300 is based on Herodotus mm. um, you get wonderful folk stories you know the story of Aaron and the dolphin uh, the story of the the, the robber who, um, who who steals gold from the pharaoh's treasure chest you get this ethnography you get um, amazing accounts of flora and fauna um, you get very amusing stories stories that can bring, still bring a smile to the lips um, the account of um, this guy Hippocleides getting unbelievably drunk and ending up Dancing on a table is is fantastic. Counterpointed to horrible stories such as the one of the um, the the the, the, the boy who gets castrated by a slaver meets the slave the slaver years later and forces the slaver to castrate his own children and then castrate himself. I mean, a very horrible story. So you get you as, it, there's a sort of sh- almost Shakespearean quality to it that that everything is within it. Brilliant. And there is no I, I you know there is no work I can think that that has as much light and shade. It's infinitely enjoyable. There is, it's an inexhaustible text. Brilliant. Which leads into my last question really, which is, um, do you hope that readers will come away from this book with a a new impression of of the man and the culture he describes, the cultures he describes? Well, I, 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 um, I, I imagine if people have already read Herodotus that, you know, they'll know what to expect. But I hope that, um, you know, I just hope I can persuade people in interviews like this that it's worth picking up a, a, a book that might seem slightly off-putting. I mean, it's very big and it was written two and a half thousand years ago by a bloke with a long white beard. And that's the kind of thing that tends to put people off. But I, I cannot emphasise enough, this is a hugely, hugely readable. Yeah. It's so vivid. It's you know. so vivid yeah. and so entertaining and so inexhaustible, mm. and you never know what to expect. Mm. And there is always something unexpected and surprising and entertaining on every page. Yeah. Read it. It's great. That was Tom Holland. Tom's new translation of the histories is set to be published later this month by Penguin. And you can read more from Matt's interview with Tom in our October issue, which has just been published. Also in this month's magazine, we're investigating the mystery of the princes in the tower, we're finding out why James VI and I waged war on witches, we're examining the Victorians' obsession with murder, and we're challenging some of the myths of the Blitz. And if any of that floats your boat, then why not pick up a copy at All Good News Agents or in one of our digital formats. Speaking of our digital formats, if you own an iPad, you can now access our Battle of Flodden interactive article free of charge. Simply download the BBC History magazine app and you can get it from there. If you've already got your copy of the October issue, you might have spotted that it comes with a special autumn book supplement. This extra section features leading historians selecting their favourite history book of the year so far, 
their favourite history work of all time, and the title they're most looking forward to in the coming months. We'll be broadcasting some of the interviews in future instalments of this podcast, and we kick off this week with Oxford professor Margaret Macmillan. Matt Elton spoke to Margaret and started by asking her about her favourite history book of all time. Well, the trouble with my favourite history book of all time is it depends what I'm thinking of, but mm. one of the ones which had a huge influence on me was when I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto and I read a book called The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Okay. And it came out, um, I think, in 1963, and she is the most wonderful narrator of the story and she does these wonderful portraits of people and it's about the outbreak of the First World War. Fantastic. And she's always been one of my great heroes. Oh, that's really nice. And I never Excellent. thought I'd end up doing no. a book on the outbreak of the First World War. Oh, amazing. Um, and how about a book that you're looking forward to, a history book that you're looking forward to? Well, there'll be a lot on the First World War, and I suppose I'm looking forward to that. Um, there's one coming up by Max Hastings, which I've only read a little bit of. And I'm looking forward to it because he, he and I, I suspect, will probably disagree on, on the origins, but he's doing the first months of the war, which I didn't do, and he's a very, very good historian, and I like the way he writes about things military. He makes them comprehensible, so I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to that. Um, and if you, if you had to pick a history book um, from the, this year, um, would there be any that you'd... What have I read this year? There's a very good one by Rana Mitter on China, yes. okay. which I really like. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, you know, what I like about it is, is he takes the big, well, he's, he's very good at taking a big picture. He also knows China very well. And he's dealing with a subject which has really been neglected, mm. you know, surprisingly neglected. And, mm. and so I think it's a really important book. That was Margaret Macmillan. Margaret's new book, The War That Ended Peace, How Europe Abandoned Peace for the First World War, will be published in October by Profile Books. And now let's join Matt again, this time in conversation with historian Ben Wilson at the English Heritage History Live event that took place this summer. So, um, what would be your choice of your favourite history book of the year so far? So far, I've been intrigued by uh, a book called Faith Executioner, okay. which came out earlier, which is a, a gritty, sort of horrible, gruesome, but very sensitively written history of uh, the public execution in Nuremberg okay. in the 16th century fascinating really you the uh, the author uses the um, sources superbly to draw out a, a side of history that we wouldn't otherwise know about and to tell that story compassionately uh, and with sort of gripping and using the sources so well I, I was really really intrigued by that oh book. that's really cool a okay. short book but, but full of energy and okay. uh, and passionately written um, and how about if you had to pick a history book of your you know all time top history book Hold on. well I'm going to sound very pompous but um, it's got to be The Decline and Fall of the Roman Okay. It would give. Okay. Because even though it's very long, it is very witty. Even the footnotes have a, have a wit to it. And it is beautifully written. And it's not a hard read. It's a long read, but it's not a hard read. It has short sentences, not great long rolling sentences like people think. It has a mixture of sentences. So it's, it's a great engaging book. And I've kind of carried it around with me all my life and oh, sort okay. of dipped in and out of it. And, Read, uh, you know, read it sort of on and off throughout my life and mm. I find it inspiring and I find it full of colour and gruesome details and kind of the you know captures the essence of the uh, enlightenment as well as a kind of classic of English prose mm, Fantastic I was talking to someone the other day actually about books that you read early on and stay being influential you know throughout your career yeah. were there any other books that you read oh, as, yes. as a young person As a young person I read history voraciously from a small child reading mm. Children's history books. Um, 
I think I, well, I was sort of I loved political history when I was when I say when I was doing my A-levels. I like I like Lord Blake's history of Disraeli. Um, How about the book that you're most looking forward to I'm in mostly, the coming months? So I'm most looking forward to uh, N.A.M. Roger Nick, Nicholas Rogers' um, third volume of his history of the Royal Navy, which is coming out later this year. Um, his first two volumes have changed the way that people write about history. It's uh, history, the, the history of the Navy. It's uh, an absolute classic of its kind. It concentrates on detail. It brings out the wider strategy as well. It's beautifully written, um, and I can't wait to read the third volume, which goes from the end of the, the, the end of the Napoleonic Wars up until the 21st century, which will bring to an end this kind of classic, modern classic of historical writing. That was Ben Wilson, whose new book, Empire of the Deep, The Rise and Fall of the British Navy, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. Plus, you can follow us on Twitter, we're at History Extra, and you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all the latest history news, blogs, features, image galleries, quizzes and more. Next week, we'll be talking witches with Tracy Borman and visiting an ancient burial site with Richard Bradley. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.